So uh, welcome. I'm glad to see that um, after a couple weeks, I'm thinning the crowd. So that's beautiful. Or maybe people show up late. We'll see what happens. Uh, but let's, uh, let's dive in and pray. Um, and then we'll, we'll get moving. Jesus, would you lead us tonight as we walk through the way that we respond to the broken world around us? There's always um, pitfalls in the way that we see it, and there are uh, lines that we need to hold and uh, a balance that we need to maintain. And so uh, as we have prayed, as I have prayed throughout this preparation process and as we've prayed these last couple weeks, give us a balance of grace and truth, the balance that Jesus so perfectly embodied, would you help us to engage that? And so, um, Jesus, we trust this to you. I pray that you would guide my words, that they would come from your spirit alone. God, help us to hear from you along the way. Give us wisdom where we lack and discernment as we need it so that we can be light in a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so thanks for continuing to engage this conversation. I know it's confusing and uh, complex and all of that, so uh, thanks for jumping in. There are, uh, there's a new note sheet in the back. I realized after I, it was all printed that I didn't put weeks on it, so the old note sheet from last week is there also because if you weren't here last week, there's a bunch of uh, quotes on there that will be really helpful in kind of painting a picture of where we are right now. And so that's, uh, that's really important. We're not going to go back to that this week, but I wanted you to at least have access to it. So um, the, the big review idea, so last week basically what I was trying to do was set up this idea that there is a world that's moving a certain direction around us, that uh, the culture has... Uh, shifted very, very quickly, and as that culture has shifted really, really quickly, we've moved into, um, I would argue, some ways that really cease to make logical sense, uh, and there's some ways that we're looking at gender and sexuality that has uh, shifted so dramatically that it doesn't really, it's hard to even get your head around it. But also, and um, I would argue, um, maybe not as far off, but even in a more grievous way, the church has overreacted the other direction, uh, creating stereotypes that I would argue are not, not biblical, but they are uh, ways of looking at gender that are very rigid and uh, have actually uh, exacerbated the problem. So uh, when, when you have in a church setting a young man who has see, sees the world from a more feminine perspective, who uh, likes art and uh, doesn't like sports and likes to dance and maybe is a little bit uh, uh, more slight of build. And he's in a place where biblical gender is established it, uh, to be the, the kind of the macho man fighting mold. Uh, it, it shouldn't surprise us that Christian boys are saying, I guess I must be a girl. And in the same way, girls who are um, a, a little bit more masculine in the way they interact, they don't play with dolls, but they play with the soldiers or guns or whatever it is that they play with, and uh, they're more into sports and they're less into all of these other feeling things. And, um, and if we paint biblical femininity to an extreme, we shouldn't be shocked that, uh, that girls like that say, well, maybe I'm a boy, maybe, I, uh, maybe God made a mistake. Uh, and I think we just need to recognize that there are times that the church plays into the problem. I don't want to say as much as the culture. The culture is way off the deep end in a lot of ways. But in, 
just a recognition the church is a part of the problem, and so we have to engage that. So today, what I want to try to do, uh, we made a, 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 a statement at the end of the week last week that, effect, that, that said, gender exists to display the glory of God, not to simply define differences, not simply to define differences. So what I want to try to do is unpack that a little bit to our response. What do we do in a culture that has uh, moved this direction? Uh, the culture has shifted. The church has shifted. Uh, how, how do we respond as the church, uh, as people who are uh, seeking to follow Jesus? What's it look like for us to respond well? And so um, we're going to get to that in a minute. I realized that there are two key definitions that we did not do. Um, we're not there yet. Um, that we didn't do last week that are really important for our conversation because otherwise it gets really confusing. And so the, those two definitions are trans man and trans woman. So it becomes very confusing to have conversations around transgender because you, you start to use pronouns, but you don't know are you using preferred pronouns or birth pronouns, and you use um, words like man and woman or, uh, or he, she, and you're saying, well, are you referring to birth sex? Are you referring to gender identity or kind of where, where it's at? So the way to make that simpler is that when, when the term trans man is used, trans man means someone who is biologically female or born female. Uh, the, uh, the, the proper term uh, within our culture would be assigned the gender of female at birth. So that's, you'll hear that term a bunch. Um, the way that gender is, uh, is noted on a birth certificate is assigned. So the gender at birth assigned was female, but that person has transitioned to male, therefore they would be called a trans man. And the other way around, so someone who is born a man, assigned male gender at birth, has transitioned to female, they would be called a trans female. So when I use those terms, that's, a, that's what I'm talking about. Tran, a trans man is somebody born a woman who has transitioned to be a man. Trans, uh, trans woman is the other way around. And the, the big kind of rally cry of our culture is trans women are women. Trans men are men. And that's the, kind of the, the, the big rallying cry that, we are kind, that we're in the middle of right now. In fact, um, I'll talk, maybe talk about this a little bit later, but Right now, like literally going on right now, uh, the Ivy League championships, uh, swim championships are happening. And Leah Thompson uh, is a trans woman who's competing as a woman for the University of Pennsylvania in uh, the swimming championships. And it's created all kinds of uh, challenge because actually she, uh, she has actually been transitioning for uh, well over two years. Uh, lots and lots of hormone therapy, and so uh, her levels are well within the NCAA guidelines. But there was one race in uh, in at Ohio University a couple months ago, and she just like destroyed everybody, and it became this huge national headline. She broke all kinds of records, um, and. Uh, she hasn't had a race like that since then, and so there's all kinds of talk like she realized that she couldn't swim to her potential, and so now she has to like kind of pull back, and she's tanking, and we'll see what happens tonight, and I have no idea what's going on right now, but we'll see. But she's competing as a female, a born male, uh, competing as a female uh, because of her, the transition that she's made. So uh, this is a hot topic out there, and the, the conversation around that is a trans woman is a woman, so she has to compete as a woman because she's a trans woman, so therefore... She competes as a woman. So this is the kind of conversation we're, we're wrestling with. So if uh, gender exists to display the glory of God, not simply to define differences, what's it look like for us to uh, start to respond to all of this? Um, 
the big idea that I want you to hear is the same question we asked when we did sexuality. So if you were with us back in October, the primary question we asked was how are we being formed? This can devolve very quickly into a conversation about morality, uh, can devolve very quickly into a question about social issues, politics, uh, all kinds of different policies. And those things are important, and I, I hate to position morality alongside of social issues and politics, but as it relates to this issue, it is the lower level issue. The primary issue is a formation issue. We should be asking the question, how are we being formed? And uh, the question of morality should be part of the formational process. So morality is a subset of formation rather than the other way around. When this becomes a morality conversation, it, uh, it elevates very, very quickly. But if you can have the conversation at a formational level, which is really the foundational level, it becomes a, a much healthier conversation. And so that question, how are we being formed, we can ask from both sides. So the first side is the, well, the trans activist side. So the trans asterisk side has a formational path. So if you walk into a counselor's office and you say that you're gender dysphoric, you were born in the wrong gender, and uh, and you're not sure what to do. There's a very clear path medically and psychologically that's laid out before you. It's a four-step process, three steps if you're older, four steps if you're younger. The first step is that you would socially transition. This is all in your notes. So there's a social transition. You would begin to present as that opposite gender. So if you're uh, born female, and you want to transition to male, you would begin to socially present as a man prior to anything else starting to change. So the first is uh, your social transition. Uh, that would be a change of name, that would be a change of pronoun, that would be a change of the way that you're uh, engaging the world. Uh, nowadays, that's primarily a social media thing, so you're engaging the world through your, uh, you've changed your gender to either uh, the opposite gender or to non-binary on your social media status, all, all that kind of stuff. So you start with a social presentation. The next step, uh, depending on your age, are puberty, puberty blockers. And so if you are prepubescent, the medical path and the psychological path is give puberty blockers so that you would have some time to make a full decision rather than having your body begin to engage in puberty. So um, puberty can't be fully stopped, but it can be greatly uh, affected through puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And so the initial thing is stop puberty so that you can have the option of a full transition down the line. It's one of the big issues with Leah Thompson. Uh, she didn't transition until she was, she actually swam for two years as a he on the men's UPenn swim team. She was an excellent swimmer as a male um, and then made the decision to transition. And while your hormones can change, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in puberty fueled by testosterone that is that makes men different than women. That's why men's shoulders get broader and that's why muscle tone looks different and that's just that's the way it works. That can't be undone at least fully through cross-sex hormones and that's a lot of the conversation that's being, uh, and there's uh, unfortunately almost no scientific data uh, specific to athletics so it's really difficult, the NCAA is in a really difficult position trying to, to navigate this because there's very little science that goes with any of this and so it, it becomes really tricky. So puberty blockers in order to not get there then cross-sex hormones are next, so the next uh, path is to begin to give uh, opposite 
gender hormones. So if you're a man who wants to transition to a woman, you begin to take female hormones. If you're a woman that wants to transition to a man, you start, start to take male hormones. And that process starts body change kinds of things, uh, as well as a bunch of other kind of uh, functionality within your body. Also, they have the long-term effect of almost always causing infertility on one side or the other. And so that process uh, most often will make the person taking the cross-sex hormones on either side infertile. So that's also part of the process that unfolds. And then the final thing in that pattern would be uh, what is called within this conversation sex confirmation surgery. Uh, we would call that a gender reassignment surgery. So you would uh, have surgery to change um, either internal, external, organs, genitalia, you would begin the process of transitioning fully, often through some form of plastic surgery in, in some way, uh, as well as other surgical procedures. Um, without getting into the medical side too far, it's important to note that um, there is no such thing as a full gender reassignment. Um, if you go through a, a gender reassignment surgery or sex confirmation surgery, um, you, you, every cell of your body is the gender it was born. So if you were born male, it doesn't matter when you started the process, it doesn't matter how early you started, how long you've been taking hormones, when you had a, a sex reassignment surgery, um, your, your cells are still male. And um, there are many doctors who've gone on record and said, like, look, we understand, we're affirming, we're, we're glad that we're doing all of these things, but I'm just telling you, if you get hit by a car and you come to the emergency room, you need to tell me what you were born, not what you are, because it's gonna change the way that we do medical care. So your, your, your body is still that thing, uh, whatever you were born as, all, all the way through life. The other thing that's important to note with, uh, with gender, uh, sex confirmation surgery, gender reassignment surgery, um, it, it very rarely fully alleviates gender dysphoria. So that thing, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means in a little bit, but that thing of gender dysphoria is very rarely fully alleviated by this process. Uh, it would not, it'd be disingenuous to say it's not helped. Um, often it does help some, but it very rarely fully alleviates the problem. And there are many, many examples of people who've done the entire process all the way through and get there and say, I, it didn't gain me anything. I'm actually just as bad off, if not worse now, than I felt before. So that's part of the challenge. What I want you to see is from a formation perspective, uh, the, the, the secular world of formation always operates in the same pathway, and that is external to internal, as, as far inside as you can get. So you start with social transition, that's the farthest outside you can go. Uh, you move into puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, so you begin the process of getting inside, and then through surgery you get as deep as you can, um, recognize you can't fully make that change, but it's always an external to internal f formation. The scriptures, of course, flip that formation. The, the desire of the, the scriptures is to see formation come from the inside out. And so uh, we'll talk about that in a minute as we talk a little bit about the way the uh, response comes. So I, I have listed for you uh, four frameworks for understanding. Mark Yarhouse, who's probably the, the preeminent theologian who's writing on sex and gender today out of Wheaton College, um, he, he has frameworks for understanding the, 
the way that we deal. So that, that question of how we respond, um, Yarha says there's three primary ways that we respond. So the first one is uh, what he calls either a design or an integrity framework. So the design integrity framework is uh, the, the John Piper side. It's the, um, there's a, a certain way that God made everything to be. It's designed that way. And whatever you're feeling is pushing back against the design of the creator. So whatever it is that you're feeling is, is against what God made it to be. And so therefore, that, that's the problem. It's very clear cut. And in that instance, that, that uh, second part there is the response is that gender dysphoria is to be battled. So in a design framework, you're fighting against gender dysphoria. And, and if someone is already dealing with deep emotional feelings based on um, not being settled with who they are, uh, picking a fight with them is probably not gonna help. And so that's, that, that's the piece that I think is really important for us to get. You may mentally be in a place where you would say, well, the design framework is true. Like, that's the way God made people. And if that's what you feel, you're fighting against that. And I, I hear that, but if our approach to people is to battle them, to fight them out of the way that they're feeling, that never ever works. Um, you can, I, I'll invite you to some counseling sessions. You can find that out. It just never, it never works. It doesn't work that way. Uh, so, so you have to be able to understand where people are coming from. The challenge with the design framework is it, it becomes a fight rather than a, a conversation. The second framework that Yarhaz talks about is a disorder framework. So in the disorder framework, gender dysphoria is a, a mental illness or some kind of a mental disorder that needs to be addressed. Uh, it, it happens when we're in a fallen world and it would be viewed the same way as somebody presenting with diabetes or the same way as someone presenting with uh, some kind of a birth defect. It would just be like, it, it's, an, it's an amoral, non-moral thing. It has not, it's not good or bad, it just is. This is the way it is, but it's viewed as a disorder. And it's really interesting because in, uh, particularly in families of trans people, particularly trans people who have transitioned or are transitioning, this is one of those areas where um, there are people who, uh, in the midst of their family, uh, change frameworks. And so this disorder framework is often talked about uh, often by parents whose kids are transitioning. They, they would title it in some way in this kind of amoral disorder kind of idea where their kids would move to the next framework down, which is a diversity framework, and they would just say, we're, we're different. And so um, the response in the disorder framework is that gender dysphoria is to be coddled, it's to be kind of uh, nurtured and uh, helped along because you recognize that it's just brokenness. It's just, that's the way it is. It's a broken world, it's the way it is, and so you try to do your best to engage it uh, as best you can. We'll talk about your house's response to it in just a second. Um, the diversity framework then is the world's framework on uh, uh, the, the kind of the broad transgender lobby. And the, the idea of the d diversity framework is basically this, that gender dysphoria is an expression of diversity, it's an expression of culture, uh, it's a difference that we have, and so in that instance, gender dysphoria should be celebrated. 
So rather than uh, coddled or certainly not battled, instead gender dysphoria is celebrated. Like this is, this is great, we're all different and it's wonderful that we're all different, so therefore we should celebrate the fact that we're all different. And so within this framework, the diversity framework, um, and the majority of people who transition come from this framework even if they're not activists. So remember we talked uh, last week about the idea that trans activism is a really, really small slice of the transgender population. The majority of people who uh, identify as transgender would simply say they, they wanna be normal, they wanna feel better, but the majority of them would also say these differences should be celebrated. So Leah Thompson uh, has given one interview in her last two and a half years of transition. She hasn't, hasn't talked to anybody about what she's doing. She's just made this change. I'm using this she pronoun because she's swimming as a girl right now and the girls, uh, <laughs> the girls swim meet, so I guess that's what we're gonna go with. Um, but sh she, hasn't, she hasn't made this a big deal. Her goal is not to be out like um, changing policy. She just wants to feel better, but she also would say, I. I'm different and I celebrate that. I celebrate this difference within me. And so that can be loud or soft. Um, the, the way that your house talks about it is that the diversity framework has a strong form and weak form. So strong form is what we talked about at the beginning of last week, the idea of eliminating gender roles completely and uh, just moving away. It's like we shouldn't even be talking about whether a baby's a boy or a girl. We, it, that, that is literally meaningless. Why are we having that conversation? So that's the strong form of diversity framework. The weak form of uh, d diversity framework is just bas basically making room for people who don't fit as easily and celebrating them rather than saying what they're experiencing is some kind of a disorder. And so that's kind of the, the distinction within there. Uh, soft form diversity framework is uh, often, in, in an affirming church, you would see a lot of soft form diversity framework. That would be a very typical, uh, even Christian response to, to transgenderism. Um, th there's a fourth frame that uh, Pastor John Tyson put together, uh, kind of coming out of these three frames from your house that I think is maybe more helpful. And so that framework is what he calls a discipleship framework. So uh, the idea of the discipleship framework is that gender dysphoria is part of our sin nature, so it agrees with the, the disorder framework as it relates to that, um, but it's also something that fails to display the glory of God fully. So when I am unwilling to live within the birth gender, if I feel as though I can't live within my birth gender, what's really happening from a formational perspective is I'm failing to fully express the glory of God because the, the way that I am and the way that I feel within my birth gender is part of the way that men and women are together created to display the glory of God. So Tyson would say, I don't know that he would use these words, but I'll use these words. Um, the response then is that gender dysphoria is to be transformed. That, that transformational work of the spirit, the inside out work of transformation, is applied to every area of our life, and every area of our life includes our own perspective on gender, the way that we perceive our gender to, to be and see and, and feel and all of that. So, Th these four frames become the way that you view, and um, you're largely viewing through one of these frames. As I just kind of look out at you and know a lot of you and know the average person within a church like York Alliance, the majority of people come into this conversation with a design framework. 
They come in saying, this is wrong and we need to fight it. The, where that doesn't exist almost always to a person is because people in a design framework almost exclusively don't actually know actual transgender people. They've never actually had a real conversation with somebody who's really wrestling with it. And so that design framework, while it makes a lot of black and white sense, starts to break down when you're actually dealing with real people, as a whole lot of the way that we approach the world does. When you start to deal with real people, it gets to be way more complicated. I always say, being a pastor would be so easy if people didn't exist. It would be, like, work so well. Like, it's, like, it's beautiful. I could just like, preach great sermons to myself and we'd just go home. Like, it's all good. People are what make everything complicated, right? Like, teaching would be really easy if you didn't have kids, right? It would be, like, be a real simple thing. Like, it's the way the process works. Um, humans make it complicated. So as you get engaged with and interact with people who are wrestling with real gender dysphoria, all of a sudden the black and white nature of the design framework starts to break down and you start to say, whoa, this is not as clear cut as it felt like it was. And so then we start to shift into trying to figure out like where do we land and what, what do we do with that? So, so the two key questions that have to be asked of believers. So now I'm talking very specifically about um, people who would say that they're followers of Jesus, of which you need to recognize many, many, many gender dysphoric people would say they are also followers of Jesus. So it is not, these are not exclusive camps. We've talked about gender dysphoria as something that's kind of this thing that's happening over here. It's happening in the church, this church and lots of other churches. It's very, very, very much within the church. It's not an outside of the church issue. So with believers in Jesus, you you're gonna approach it slightly differently, but that approach has to have two questions. One of them is, who is actually Lord? And if Jesus is Lord, what does he say about my body? Like, does Jesus care about my body or does he just care about my soul? That's a question that's been asked for 2,000 years. The, um, some of you know the term Gnostic. The, the Gnostic heresy was effectively that God didn't care what happened to your body. You could do whatever you want with your body because God really only cares about your spirit. And that has continued on in various forms and it's very much alive and well today. Um, uh, Nancy Piercy's book, uh, Love Your Body, uh, it's not primarily about transgender, although there's a bunch of transgender application within there, but uh, her book talks about this idea of the way that we've separated body from soul in most of the way that we engage the world. Uh, it's actually a, a real massive issue within the abortion debate right now uh, because we've separated body and soul. And so uh, the idea of a body being formed, uh, she talks about something called personhood theory. And basically if you're, you're, you're not uh, recognized as a person until you reach certain status, which uh, has, there are ethicists on record as saying, like, uh, actually, the, the legal right to abortion should be able to uh, extend to roughly 18 months to two years after birth in order to, because a person doesn't really exist yet, because that, that baby isn't really a person. Personality hasn't started to come out yet, and so therefore personhood theory says that's just a body, not a soul. So that whole concept is something that is very, very pervasive within culture when you start to look at a um, a, a policy level. There's lots and lots of policy that is beginning to uh, kind of line up within this personhood area. So the question for a Christian first is, does Jesus care about my body? If he does, what does it mean that he's Lord over all of me, including my body? And then the second one is that formation question. And very specifically, how does my response to what I'm feeling that I'm calling gender dysphoria, how does my response to that 
affect my discipleship. Because if, in the end, so if you go back to the the sexuality class, one of the things we talked about with same-sex attraction is what's primary, my sexual fulfillment or my discipleship to Jesus? And if, if the call of the Lordship of Christ that forms me is the greater call, then the idea of choosing celibacy doesn't all of a sudden become easy, but it becomes a discipleship pathway. And the same thing happens with a formation discussion around gender dysphoria. The issue is not what would make me happy. The issue is how does that impact my discipleship? And there are good, robust conversations happening around that. It's not a black and white easy answer. But the question, uh, how does it affect my discipleship, is a really important one. So um, response. So um, basically what I want to try to do is walk through three primary ways the church is called to respond to this entire movement, uh, both in the world around us and in our midst with people who are walking through this um, among us, people who are uh, wrestling with uh, transgender identities. So the first thing I want to look at is the idea of a cultural response. So last week, I very briefly unpacked for you um, Philip Reef's work. Uh, Philip Reef has done way more stuff than we have time to walk through here. But I wanted to put on paper for you in your notes this first world, second world, third world framework, also called first culture, second culture, third culture. That's what I, uh, those were the terms I used last week. Uh, Reef uses them interchangeably, and uh, a lot of Reef's commentators use it interchangeably. The idea is first world culture is a pagan world that is uh, uh, grounded in the sacred order, in, uh, in myth, and uh, they're, they're in the process of uh, worshiping a variety of different gods, uh, seeking a narrative, kind of trying to find a narrative. Second world is, uh, a, a gr- easy way to say it is that it's no longer characterized by fate, but now by faith. So there is a, a defining narrative, kind of a central narrative that's uh, working its way through. And in that central narrative, there's a specific, uh, a specific truth. And so typically that's uh, Christianity, a Judeo-Christian worldview is kind of the, the typical example of that. But there's almost always a, a holy scripture of some kind, some kind of a defining work that, uh, that leads uh, the second world culture. Second world easily evangelizes first world because like Paul did in Acts chapter 17, it's a really simple, like, um, you worship all of these things. Let me tell you about the God that you're missing, or let me tell you about the God that is unifying all of these different things. So the evangelism framework from first world to second world makes a lot of logical sense. Third world, and this is where Reef started to really unpack the world that we're living in now, is effectively anti-culture. It, there's no sacred order, and God becomes an unnecessary hypothesis. There's no need for a God because we have science, we have the world around us, we have all that we're experiencing, and rather than an overarching narrative, there are micro-narratives. I I have my own narrative, and so uh, that's why you hear phrases like, that's my truth, what's your truth, or what what, what do you, uh, one of the things that is uh, so prevalent within our culture is we no longer say, I think or I believe, we almost always say, I feel. Do you notice yourself saying that? Well, I feel like... I feel like, well, feeling language removes the absolute away from it and puts it to an internal. So when I feel like this is true, all I'm saying is I feel like that's true. You don't have to feel like it's true because that's how I feel. 
And so you can't doubt the way I feel because that's how I feel. That's my narrative. What's your narrative? That's the heart of Reef's kind of concept of, of anti-culture. And in this process of anti-culture, I, I want to lay out for you, I'm going to read for you uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Uh, it's also in your notes. Uh, th this is uh, what theologians call the cultural mandate. So this idea of culture, think about the way that God laid this out in Genesis 1, 26, 28. So God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over uh, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Having, uh, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the cultural mandate effectively said there's chaos in the created world. God has created all that is, and all that is is kind of messy. And so humans created in the image of God, bearing, remember that idea of icon, bearing the representative rule of God, are charged with going out into the world and making order of chaos. That's the, the simple way to understand the, the scriptural narrative is Genesis 1, we're given the responsibility to make order out of chaos. Genesis 3, instead we create more chaos in the midst of chaos. And then by the time we get to Revelation 21, God through his power has redeemed our chaos and brought it into order. And so the, the call of the cultural mandate is effectively make this overgrown garden into a city, and Revelation 21 is the emergence of the new Jerusalem, that city made by God, not made by man. So that idea of culture is that we are called as Christians to order chaos. Well, the modern world, this uh, anti-culture thing that we're talking about, is disordering in order to create chaos out of order. So Male-female gender is a very ordered, uh, binary, very structural way of looking at the world. Breaking that down to some kind of a pan-gender uh, spectrum of gender uh, takes something that's ordered and it brings chaos into the order. The modern world is breaking things down all around. It's, it's the entire process of what uh, philosophers call deconstruction, not just a deconstruction of faith, but the deconstruction of everything. A deconstruction philosophy is kind of breaking stuff down. It's the, um, the heart of postmodern theology. So agents of redemption then, if you go back to that, uh, that arc that we talked about, so there are people who are redeemed, cracked icons who have been redeemed by God. Our responsibility, our call is to be people who now begin to take that disorder and bring it back into order. That's the responsibility of what it means to be a, a redeemed icon, a, an image bearer of God. And, and so what that means for us from a cultural perspective is our response to gender isn't simply focused on gender. It's not an issue for us. It's, it's people and people who, who are struggling with all kinds of things including gender dysphoria, make up a broad culture that is struggling with all kinds of different things, including gender dysphoria, and our goal is to redeem that culture, to be part of the redemptive work of God in the culture. So um, Carl Truman uh, 
wrote this book, The Rises and Triumph of the Modern Self, really, really excellent look at the breadth of both Reef's work and all kinds of other philosophers who have uh, kind of formed the framework for the world that we live in. Uh, Truman says this, Christians today are not opponents of anti-culture. Too often we are a symptom of it. In short, our response to the major issues of our day, particularly those associated with the LGBTQ movement and its demands, cannot be isolated from the wider framework of anti-culture in which we live. So let me pause. I'm going to get to the rest of this quote in just a second. But basically what he's saying is uh, we isolate down to issues and we miss the fact that we're actually living in anti-culture in the rest of our lives, but this one issue we want to try to order while we live in anti-culture everywhere else. And that, that's the heart of Truman's argument, is that we're so immersed in anti-culture that we're not able to be, uh, to be agents of redemption because we're, we're disordering things too. We're in the same process. So listen to this. We cannot blithely accept no-fault divorce, for example, and then complain that Obergefell redefined marriage. That's the, uh, the, Supreme Court definition, uh, the Supreme Court case from 2015. The basic redefinition of marriage did not take place in 2015, but when Governor Ronald Reagan, a conservative hallmark, by the way, uh, when Governor Ronald Reagan signed no-fault divorce into law in California in 1970. The, the challenge that we have is that anti-culture goes far deeper than gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is a very recent emergence, a very recent fruit of anti-culture. But anti-culture has been happening in the United States culture, in Western culture, for decades, many decades. And the, the vast majority of followers of Jesus who are strongly opposed to transgender uh, movements in any direction are also strongly in favor of maintaining something like a no-fault divorce law. Like, if you want to get divorced, you get divorced. That's not my deal. I, I, what we do in the church is a separate thing, but what you do out in the world, that's your own deal. Like, you don't, you don't see Christians. I, I cannot name one Christian who is in the process of campaigning against no-fault divorce in the world around us. Like, there's not one pastor that I'm aware of who is throwing a fit as I have a little, um, I, every time I do a wedding, I have this like internal dilemma because in order to do a wedding, as a pastor responsible for the ordinance that's given in Genesis chapter two, I am responsible to fill out paperwork from the state and return that paperwork to the state in order for the, that marriage to be effective. And if I don't fill out the paperwork and send it to the state, what I said in the marriage doesn't mean anything. I don't see any pastors campaigning against that. Well, we gave marriage away a long time ago, and there's nobody that's arguing about that. But now all of a sudden, it's like, we gave marriage away 200 years ago, and now you want to marry gay people, and everybody's like freaking out. Like, we gave marriage away so long ago, the, the culture has always defined marriage. The culture has defined marriage for decades. And so why would we be shocked that the culture is now defining marriage, right? Same thing's happening with gender dysphoria. Like, it, it's... It, it, it's like the tipping point for a lot of believers. And now all of a sudden we're saying, we need to redeem this culture. Well, there's all kinds of brokenness to culture. And we need to do a much better job of stepping back from culture rather than attacking a specific issue and saying, what does it look like for us as Christians to be redemptive agents in culture that begin to build beauty, to, to order chaos, the way that we were originally called to order chaos? So the first response is a cultural response. It, it, 
when we start to look at the world like that, gender dysphoria becomes less of a primary issue and more of a fruit of a much broader thing that's happening in the world around us. And if we can step back and look at that, I, I don't want to take away some of the angst that people feel around the gender dysphoria, dysphoric issue. It, it's a serious issue. And the idea of completely like flushing gender and not having genders anymore is a, a big problem. When gender exists to display the glory of God, we should be behind having gender, right? Like that's a big deal. Um, and it wouldn't be shocking if gender exists to display the glory of God that the enemy would fight against gender. Like that just makes perfect sense. But if, our is if we become single issue in this and we miss the broader cultural uh, world that we live in, we may or may not be able to pass laws but we will not be able to impact culture. The, you, you, can, you can change the law. Um, so go, if, you, uh, if you want a little fun thing tonight, you can go back and study what happened when all of the anti-alcohol laws of the 20s were passed and just kind of see what happened. Just do a little bit of research as to how much people drank or not in the 20s. It's really fascinating. Uh, you can pass all kinds of laws. It does not change behavior. And the the transgender train has already left the station. And so whether or not we have laws, and I'm not saying um, we should be opposed to laws that regulate the gender in an appropriate way, I'm just saying that's not the solution. That's not gonna, like you, you holding a sign and running around and yelling isn't gonna fix anything. Like at this stage, our call as redemptive agents is to impact culture. So that's the first one. Uh, culture is the first work that we go into. The second one is uh, mission or, or being missional. Um, when we approach transgender people and the issue of gender dysphoria, we need to recognize that people created in the image of God are broken, cracked icons that God intends to redeem through the atonement of Jesus. That, that's the work that God is doing in and through us. And so someone who is a trans man or a trans woman, someone who is wrestling with gender dysphoria, someone who is presenting in a certain way, um, in a way that maybe is uncomfortable for you or is, uh, is difficult for you, who is not a follower of Jesus, is n not excluded from the mission of the church, but actually should be invited into the mission of the church. So that means that as good church folk, we should be very connected to people who are wrestling with their gender because they're wrestling with something. We'll talk a little bit more about it when we get the pastoral in just a minute. But they're wrestling with something deep inside of them and the, the redeeming work of Jesus is what's ultimately needed. I mean, we can talk about all the other stuff. What's ultimately needed is the redeeming work of Jesus. The problem that we have is that the church has followed a model that effectively says this um, without saying it out loud. So we behave and once we behave, then we move into believing. This is why I behave the way I behave. And then once I behave and believe, then I'm able to belong. So I stop doing the stuff I'm supposed to do because um, I'm not supposed to do. I stop that bad behavior. So I, um, you know, if, it's, if, if we're in the idyllic 50s, it's, um, what was that Grease song? I don't, uh, something, I smoke or swear, gnat my hair or something like that. Like all of those, like the, those things, like you don't go to movies, you don't play cards. That was all the old stuff. You know, now it's like, you know, you don't do drugs and 
transition to genders or whatever, whatever your thing is, you know? Um, so it's like the, this outward behavior starts to change, and the way the church has traditionally worked is the outward behavior starts to change, and then the church starts to teach you why that behavior should change. And so then you're kind of walking through the gospel, and you're walking through the law, and you're explaining, like, this is why you shouldn't do the things that you're doing. This is why all that stuff that you used to do is bad, and now this is good, because now you're moving in the right direction. And once the behavior changes and the belief is engaged, then someone's able to actually belong. They actually start to feel like they fit within a church setting. Problem is, biblically, that is completely backwards. So the, the role of the church should be to invite people into belonging, they will know we are Christians by our love, right? So they, they have to experience that love in order to know we are Christians by that love, to know the Jesus that creates that love in us. So we invite people in to real relationship, uh, not a not tokenism relationship, not a, a you can be out here but you can't be in here kind of relationship. Uh, real, we invite people into real relationship. As they belong, they begin to believe, um, probably not in uh the Exodus 20 Old Testament law, but probably in the love of Jesus that motivated the belongingness in the first place. And in that process of beginning to believe, now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit, who's actually the one who's supposed to do the work of behaving, I don't know if you've read that, but that's actually the way it's supposed to work. Uh, Jesus starts to change us. And as Jesus starts to change us, we actually start to behave differently. So behavior becomes a fruit and belongingness becomes the invitation rather than the other way around. And the church for too long is in a place where we're saying, like, there are certain people who fit and certain people who don't fit. And you don't say it out loud, but when the person who doesn't fit walks in, everybody's like, what are they doing here, right? Like, why do they look like that? Why are they acting like that? Like, there's, there's this kind of, like, undercurrent that shouldn't be there, and nobody really wants to be there, but it just happens, right? Um, and so moving to a place where we're saying, we're, we want to be inviting people in wherever they're coming from, wherever they're at, and inviting them into belongingness. And that belongingness is not, not for the sake of them believing, but believing becomes a byproduct of them belonging. So I'll say it a different way. We invite somebody to belong as long as they want to belong. And if that means they come in, let's say, a trans man or a trans woman comes having fully transitioned, having wrestled through gender dysphoria, comes in here and begins to interact within the community, our goal is not to say, we're going to love you for a, 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 a finite period of time until you make the decision that you're going to follow Jesus. If you're not going to follow Jesus, we're going to kick you out. <laughs> like, we wouldn't say that, but that's the way it starts to work, right? It's like, like it, it, you're not moving. Why aren't you moving? Well, the, the invitation is come be a part of the community. Let's love you and walk with you. And then you, we'll see what happens. God does that or he doesn't do that. And if he doesn't do that, you keep loving that person and continuing on And as long as that person is willing to remain as a part of the fellowship. So for us, we haven't experienced this as much with gender dysphoria as we have with sexuality. But one of the things we've seen, uh, man, I can't even number the amount of times. Uh, we've had many, many same-sex attracted people, um, people who've come in in same-sex relationships, people who've come in married, same-sex marriages, come in and have loved being here. And they haven't been told to leave. They've been loved. And that's, that's wonderful. That's exactly as it should be. 
at some point in time, most of them make the determination. Um, they're preaching the truth, and the truth pushes against who I am, and so they have to make a decision about that. But that's not ever because somebody sits across from them and says, look, like you either start to believe differently or you need to get out. It's just that over a period of time, people start to either start to change or they start to feel like, oh man, maybe this isn't my kind of community. And that's fine. For people to opt out of community is perfectly appropriate. But we as a community should be inviting people in. And that's one of the things that we have largely missed. And we've done it, I, I would say we've done it better in the area of sexuality than we have in the area of gender. And in fairness, gender has only become a hot topic for the last 10 or 15 years, so we haven't had as much practice. So hopefully that's something that we will continue to get, get better at along the way. Um, but the, the lordship of Jesus should be the thing that pushes people, not the exclusiveness of the community. And so that's, one of those, that, that's an area where um, we need to approach this issue from a missional perspective. And then the last one, oh, let me, uh, there's a quote on here that's, uh, I think, really, really helpful. This is Mark Yarhouse. He says, if you want a person suffering from gender incongruence to choose a path that seems more redemptive, you will want to be part of a redemptive community that facilitates that kind of decision making. I, I think what Yarhouse is saying is really helpful because he's lifting the idea of redemption above the idea of gender dysphoria and saying it's not so much that you want to be a place where somebody with gender dysphoria would feel welcome, it's that you would want to be a place where people are always invited to make redemptive decisions about their life. And if you're a part of a community where people are being redeemed, where you see the redemptive work of Jesus unfolding all the time, then one of the kinds of people who would be coming would be somebody who's gender dysphoric. That would, that would just make perfect sense because there's, um, there, there's a, a redemptive aspect to the community. Uh, I think this is a key idea that um, uh, LGBTQ people, one of the things that they say almost across the board, I've talked to so many people who all basically say the same version of the hardest thing about starting to follow Jesus coming out of that community is that there was real community there and the church doesn't have that kind of community. And that's an incredible indictment on the church, but it's really true. It's one of those things that we, we have to really wrestle through. Um, people leaving, that one of the things that the LGBTQ community is really good at is loving the people that are part of that community. And we have to learn to be better at loving people who are part of our community. And that is that belonging first so we can love people towards Jesus. All right, that's a lot about that. Um, mission is a really big aspect of this. And the last one is, uh, is pastoral. So um, it's, it cannot be overstated that the issue of transgender is a broad social issue, but no person is the issue of transgender. They're people. And so to walk with and love people is our call pastorally. And when I say pastorally, I don't mean it's my job, um, although it is my job too, but it's all of our job as we, pastor means shepherd, it's a root word that means shepherd, as we shepherd people towards Jesus, we love people that direction. We love people towards him. And so what that means is that we, we help someone with gender dysphoria seek to achieve peace within their own spirit in the best way that we can. Now, Yarhouse, I don't fully agree with him. Yarhouse would say, 
Um, you, do the, you, you look at that four-step process, social transition into puberty blockers, into cross-sex hormones, into surgery. Yarhaus would say you seek to alleviate gender dysphoria by the least invasive means possible, recognizing that surgery is the most invasive thing that you can do. And so what, what Yarhaus would say is you start down that process, and if you can alleviate gender dysphoria through, uh, uh, through cross-dressing, or through wearing makeup, or through some cross-sex hormones, um, better to do that than move all the way to surgery, get to a place where gender dysphoria is alleviated. I, I, I would argue slightly differently, and here's, here's the way I, I think we have to figure out how to say this, but this is, this is the way, what's kind of underlying it. Um, some of the conversation we had at the end of last week around some of the questions was basically, um, wh what's it mean to feel like a man or feel like a woman? If I was going to give you a microphone, next week I'll give you a microphone, I was going to give you a microphone, and we we're going to pass it around, and all of the women in here would describe what it feels like to be a woman, there would be as many different definitions as there are women in here. And the same thing would be true for men. Like, that's not, that's not an objective thing. That's a completely subjective thing that cannot be defined. So, when someone says... I'm born male, but I feel like fe a female. I feel like a woman. That is, that is literally, by definition, an illogical statement. You cannot, what you feel something, you, you, and you probably feel something really, really strongly, but it's, it's illogical to say you feel like a woman if you're born a male, because you don't know what a woman feels like. Because a woman doesn't feel like anything. There is no like, standard of what a woman feels like. There, just like there's no standard of what a man feels like. So you feel like you is what you feel like. You feel like you with a, a deep disturbance. Something's going on. But it's, it, it's not even logical to say that you feel like a woman or you feel like a man because that's not even a defined term. Like that, it's, that's not, it, it's not objective. That's completely subjective. So from a pastoral perspective, we have to be willing to wrestle with the idea that this person feels something, feels something very, very deeply, so deeply that they would be willing to live in a state where they feel as though their body and their soul are fighting one another in order to communicate what they're feeling. So there's something deep inside of them that needs to be addressed. But to say that that thing is gender it is like literally illogical. It doesn't, it doesn't make any concrete sense because it's impossible for us to define what one gender or the other gender feels like. Here's what I want you to hear. From a pastoral perspective, there's something deep and really painfully going on in that person. Something is happening in them. And for us to respond only to an issue and not to a person is to miss whatever it is that's happening in there. And so my role as a pastor, if I have a brave person who's willing to come to me and have a conversation about gender dysphoria, my response cannot be, would never be to talk them out of gender dysphoria as much as to seek to get underneath what, what, what's going on and hopefully bring them to a place where they would recognize I'm not sure what I'm feeling, but it actually doesn't make any sense to say that I'm feeling like a man or feeling like a woman because I don't know what that feels like. 
what, what, I, what I do feel like is I don't fit in my body. Now that's a whole other conversation. And it leads us down a path that doesn't end up with a, a, a very invasive surgery that will bring infertility and some really deep scars mentally and emotionally as well as physically. Um, but it leads down a path where you can start to actually deal with that thing. But pastorally, we need to recognize something's going on. When these people are feeling this, and when they're expressing that there's, they, they feel as though they're born into the wrong gender, what they're meaning is there's something deep inside of me that's broken, and I, I, I long to have that thing addressed. And while the process of what has been called reparative therapy, some of you know that, that term, reparative therapy, um, used both in, the, in terms of sexuality and in terms of gender, uh, often within the church, basically the idea is you just pray that out of them, you know, like, like you, you experience same-sex attraction, we're just gonna pray for you until you stop feeling same-sex attracted. Or you, you're feeling gender dysphoric, we're just gonna pray over you, we're gonna pray that out of you, you know? And um, there, there's a lot of negative to that and it can be used in a really, really damaging way. The heart behind it is the right heart. It's just approached the wrong way. It's often like, literally, like Matt, Matt some of you were here when Matt Bros was uh, teaching in October, he's literally had people say, I'm gonna pray the gay out of you. And like, that's not gonna help anything. That's not, that's not gonna move us anywhere. The same way you can't pray the gender dysphoria out of someone from that perspective, but pastorally you can try to get to the root of what's going on and try to help that person move from a dysphoric state to a stable state in what they feel, to begin to, to experience this thing that I feel, this is okay. It's okay for me to feel like this. And I think that's one of the ways, particularly early on, when kids are exhibiting gender dysphoria um, and even begin to have language, particularly in a culture where in schools they're being talked about it on a very regular basis, when they're saying things like, I feel like the opposite gender, to, to start to help them express that in a way that says, you, you don't, as a little girl, so, I mean, I can, I, I, we, we have kids that tend to stereotype opposite gender. Tia, our oldest, is, she's a tough girl. Like, all the, all the boys literally are afraid of her. Like, she'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll say something to her, and she'll be like, she'll just go like this, and they'll be like, okay, never mind, never mind. Like, they're like, they're like literally afraid of her. Um, and Ethan's the other way around. He's the first one running, well, running away. Tia does this, and he's like, oh, I'm out, you know, whatever, and he runs the other way. He's more of an artist and more of a dancer and all of that kind of stuff. But what we've tried to create for them, and, and I think what's really important for us as parents and spiritual leaders, people who are mentors walking with people, is to create space for boys and girls to not fit within a stereotype, but to still be, that doesn't mean you're not a boy, it doesn't mean you're not a girl, it just means that you express your boy-girl differently. That's totally fine. You don't, you don't have to wear dresses. Tia's worn, I don't know, four or five in her life. Like, she's just not interested. Like, that's not her thing. And uh, she has a grandmother who keeps trying to get her more dresses, and it's just not happening. Like, it's not going to go. Uh, and that's, that's fine. It's totally fine. And Ethan wears some very loud clothes, and they're not dresses, but they're very loud. They're very loud. And that's fine. Like, we just say, great, go for it. And his dad wears some loud clothes sometimes, too. It's okay. No problem. So that, that process of giving people space to be themselves and to recognize uh, masculinity isn't this, masculinity is this, and femininity isn't this, femininity is this, and that thing that you're feeling 
doesn't mean that you are born in the wrong gender, but it does mean that there's something going on that we should probably try to work through. Like it, we, we can begin the process of trying to identify what that is. Why, why is it that you feel like that? Like, let's try, to, let's try to understand that. Let's try to unpack that a little bit. And so through, through biblical counseling that directs people towards life in Christ, pastorally, you can get to a place where you start to um, get underneath some of those things. All right, so I, I left a lot of time for questions today because we have some really good questions. Um, so I was trying to wrap this up a little earlier and get to some of these. These are gonna kind of flow along. So we had a couple that um, I postponed because they landed more today. Um, so let me hit those. I saw a couple more come in. Um, and if you're texting me on an Android device, I have to... Mike, could you do me a huge favor? Could you run back to my desk and grab my phone that is sitting there? Because it's coming through my iPad, but my phone is sitting back on my desk, and so therefore, it's probably not going to work. Thank you. Um, so uh, let's start with this question. This, this, this is a question that I got actually coming out of the sexuality class uh, in October, and it made me dread doing this class. This is, this is maybe the most difficult question to try to wrestle through, so let me try to wrestle through it with you. Here's the question. If a man identifies as a woman, but does not transition into becoming a woman, but publicly it, it, it asserts himself as a woman, though remaining celibate, would he be barred from leadership because he identifies as a woman, even though he's a man? So, uh, follow the question. A man identifies as a woman, um, maybe wears makeup and a dress, because those are cultural constructs anyways. Braveheart also make up an address, right? Um, so maybe dresses differently, does not transition through hormones, does not transition through surgery, transitions uh, solely externally in cultural factors. Would he, who identifies as she, be able to be in leadership? And thank you, appreciate it. Um, and the other way around, would she, if born female, identifying as male, this, be, this is where it gets to be really tricky, in a male eldership denomination, would she, identifying as he, be able to be an elder? Like at what point do our gender constructs in leadership actually get in the way of us being able to love people well because she's transitioning to he and now she should be able to be an elder because she's a man now, right? Or he's transitioning to she. Can he still be an elder if he comes to an elder's meeting and address? Like, how does, that, how does that work? Very, very difficult question. Here's the best way I can answer it. So if you go back to that big arc, so you have creation, fall, restoration, or redemption, restoration. So the question that you always have to ask when dealing with a follower of Jesus is what aspect of the story are you identifying with? So where, where does your identity lie? Does it lie in fall or does it lie in redemption? And, and that's where the conversation would start to, to happen. So at the, at the core issue, the question is if a man identifies as a woman and declares his identity as a woman, even though he has not transitioned in any other way, is he, the question is, is he then acting out of fall or out of redemption? And I would argue, if you're, if you're identifying with the gender that is not your birth gender, you're operating out of fall. That doesn't mean you're evil, 
but it means that you're operating out of your fall identity, not your redeemed identity. So redemption means that for all of the things I may be wrestling with and all of the ill at ease I may feel within my body, I am, I, I'm learning to identify within my birth gender because God didn't make a mistake and he has created my gender, however I express my gender, as part of the way that the glory of God is revealed. And so therefore I would argue that that person if they're choosing to identify with the opposite gender, not their birth gender, would not be able to be in leadership in the same way that anyone who is seeking to identify themselves with any sinful behavior um, would also not be able to be in leadership. So it would actually be the same reason why uh, uh, someone who is celebrating their other forms of sexual immorality or celebrating their lying or bursts of anger or all kinds of things that would be uh, disqualifying for leadership. The same thing would be disqualifying for leadership. Uh, it would be that you're choosing to identify with that. It, the, the core, I, I would argue, core of what it means to be a Christian, but certainly core to what it means to be a leader is a lifestyle of repentance. Re recognizing that you're seeking constantly to come back to the lordship of Jesus. And so it would be impossible for you to identify cross-gender and also be fully repenting to the lordship of Jesus if you believe theologically. Now, obviously, there's lots of theological disagreement on it, but I would argue theologically um, that, that your birth gender is the way that God is revealing his glory through you. And so, therefore, um, identifying away from your birth gender would be identifying with fall, not redemption. That's a, that's a really hard question, and it's a really tricky one to kind of work through, but hopefully I made it. Thankfully, I was given a bunch of months to process it. If I had to do that one off the cuff, it would not have come out that way. Um, the second question that I got uh, that I, I thought was really, really excellent was, um, effectively, I'm going to try to summarize. It's a really long question, but basically the summary is, why does the church react in fear and pushing away to this issue? Why is it that the world tends to be very loving and accepting of people who are processing gender issues, and the church almost acts like it's catching, like it's like like if I get too close to you, I'm probably going to start to like feel that too, right? It's like like sin gets us all dirty somehow or something. It's a it's a crazy idea, but the the concept underneath it I think is really really uh, it's a major issue. I, the church almost always fails to live within the victory of Jesus. The, the church, particularly as the culture grows in strength and influence, the church more often than not feels like, uh, like, like they're second-class citizens. Like the church, the church is not in the center of town anymore. The, church is not, the pastor is not like the, the primary person in the community. If I walk into the community and say that I'm a pastor, there's more people who are not interested than people who are interested, that's for sure. Uh, so as that has shifted, as we've moved away from a Christendom model, uh, one of the challenges that we have is the church has started to feel like um, we're lesser than. And that's fine from a humility perspective, but it's not fine from an eternity perspective. Like we need to recognize that actually, um, like as depressing as these conversations can be at the surface, that the beauty of what, what we're talking about is that there's actually a redemptive story that's being written in the middle of this. Like there's actual beauty in the middle of this. And 
when we miss that, we, we retreat to defeat. And that's why we tend to put up walls with people who are wrestling with like get away rather than invite in or nurture and love and care for rather than exclude. And the, the reason is, is that we forget that God actually redeems all things. Like he's actually in the process of redeeming this thing too, all of it. Um, I quoted David Foster Wallace on Sunday. Um, David Foster Wallace is a fascinating character because um, there are only a handful of people across the last 150 to 200 years that see culture as clearly as somebody like David Foster Wallace did. Um, some of the other names that you would probably know are people like Nietzsche saw culture that clearly. Um, Martin Heidegger saw culture that clearly. There's, there's, only, there's only so many of them. The challenge is if you are apart from God, if you have an agnostic or atheistic worldview and you see culture that clearly, almost all of those people, David Foster Wallace died of suicide in the late, uh, maybe 2008, 2009. Um, almost all those people either die of suicide or die by going crazy. Because if all you have is a keen view of culture but no sense of redemption, like, you, you, you can't get anywhere. The, the reason why there's all kinds of happiness within the culture today is because largely people are not thinking. Like, if you, would, if you actually think about what you believe and the actual end of what you believe, like, there's a lot of hopelessness out there. And the only people who are not hopeless are people who can tell a redemption story. And so it's a wild idea that we would be somehow afraid of these movements. Like, there should be no fear in you. As you hear all of this, you shouldn't be like, oh my goodness, the world's falling apart. Oh, I just hope Jesus comes back and rescues me real soon. Like, what you should be saying is, wow, there's a great opportunity because broken people, when people know they're broken, that's the time they really need to meet Jesus. Like, they're ready to meet Jesus at that point. Uh, people who have their life together, those are the people that are really, really hard to introduce to Jesus. But people who know they're broken, huh. I mean, how, how much more broken can you feel then I'm sure I was born in the wrong body. Like that's a, that's a pretty solid starting point to brokenness. And that should be for us a, a, an opportunity to love people really well. But instead, what it tends to make us do is retreat and be afraid. And so I wanna encourage you with all of this, um, I, I think uh, particularly last week, you can walk away from a session like last week and just feel like, ugh, like, oh, the world is so messed up, awful. Like that doesn't, that never needs to be our response. Like, yes, we should look with reality at the world around us and recognize that the hope of Jesus infiltrates all of that. And so that's, that should be for us an entryway into good news all the time. So the answer to the question is, I'm not sure why the church does that. They shouldn't, but we do. We do. And I'm part of it. We do. Um, oh, that says that they... Uh, uh, there's also a speech tournament that's going on online right now, so I'm getting a bunch of alerts. I was like, man, I got a lot of questions. Oh no, the LD round is starting soon. Never mind. Um, okay, so uh, does full gender change affect body immune system functionality? Um, so it, so um, I'm not a medical doctor, so I should pr uh, say to start with, um, I, I, what I know is very limited, and it's because I've read people who know more than I do. So that's, that's all I got here. The way I understand transition is that all of the functions of your body are impacted by transition, but you are not transitioned to that opposite gender 
you're simply impacted by it. So the immune system, among other things, would be impacted. Everything would be impacted, but it doesn't mean if you're a trans woman that your body is impacted by becoming a woman. It's just impacted by um, there being a lot of woman characteristics within a body that still has male chromosomes within the cell. So, so hormone therapy does not change your chromosomal makeup. So if, you, if you're born XY, every cell in your body has XY, and no matter when you, you can transition at four, and you can have surgery at nine, and you can live to be 100, every chromosome in your body still has a Y chromosome, or every cell in your body still has a Y chromosome in it. That, that doesn't change. That's, that's the challenge with medical transition. There are a lot of things that can transition. Um, the, the big red flag to medical transition, well, there's a bunch of them, um, two of them that immediately are issues. We'll talk next week about the idea of rapid onset gender dysphoria. One of the um, ways that gender dysphoria presents is um, in people who never had gender dysphoria, but now you can move from for the first time in my life, I feel like I was born in the wrong body as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, and you could move by the time you're 14 to literally being prepared for surgery after having puberty blockers and cross-hormone therapy and ready to transition fully, and you can make that decision with medical oversight apart from your parents and apart from other people in your life. And there are all kinds of people who are finding themselves having walked down a path that they're saying, I never wanted to walk down that path. I'm 14 years old. Like, why did anybody let me do that? You know, and so one, one of the major issues, and this is not, this is not a Christian issue, this is a, um, this is a cultural issue. One of the major things that's happening is that this generation of kids that has been nurtured in this gender-affirming culture is now in, not 100%, chunks of percentages of people are emerging out saying, who, who let me do this? Where were my parents? Where were the adults in the room? Like, somebody should have told me this was a bad idea, and yet here I am. And now I'm infertile, and now I've done irreparable change to my body that can't go back. Um, uh, there, there are lots of women who have detransitioned back to women, so trans men who've detransitioned back to women, who will have for the rest of their lives very deep hair and hair in places they wish they wouldn't have. And that's what happens when you take a lot of testosterone over a period of time. It's just the, it's the same thing that happened to, um, if you go all the way back when uh, you had, uh, there were countries, Eastern Bloc countries competing in the Olympics, and there were lots of women who were taking lots of testosterone, and it was always like, wow, they don't really look like women. Well, that was the, they, they weren't trying to be men, they were just trying to win, but it's the same stuff, right? You take that much testosterone, that's what happens. And so there's this, this shift that has started to happen. That, that's one of the great challenges. The other, the other major issue with medical transition is that it, it, it is not, not even 50% effective at curing gender dysphoria. So the statistics say there are tons of people, the majority of people, who fully medically transition and would say they still feel some element of gender dysphoria even though they're fully transitioned. And so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fix the problem is the bottom line. So, yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, oh, man. Uh, um, so the, the first question was uh, the, the source data for that 
that statement, that idea that uh, transition doesn't fix gender dysphoria. Um, I could pull like the specific statistics, but there's been uh, the, the Center for, I think it's sexuality, it may just be sexuality and gender, I can't remember. Uh, it's run by Preston Sprinkle, I quoted Preston last week. Uh, they've commissioned a ton of studies on uh, trans people who have uh, transitioned and gotten a lot of data back from, uh, from that. Barna has done that as well, um, but actually Barna's probably not the leader within that. There's uh, lots, of, uh, lots of surveys that are being done. So there are, um, there are also secular surveys that are out there that are saying the same thing. Um, they're not as widely published, so they're a little harder to find, but um, you can find them. Um, so I can, I can get you that information. Um, where would a trans person dysphoric, uh, dysphoric transitioned through to sexual confirmation surgery who identifies as a follower of Jesus in terms of their choice being an open-handed or closed-handed issue, would you break fellowship with that person? So uh, that's a great question. So the question, the, the, let me summarize. If someone shows up to our fellowship, they are a um, trans woman, man who has transitioned to a woman, who says, I'm very comfortable with my choice. I'm very comfortable with who I am and where I'm at and what, what's going on with my life. Um, and I want to be a part of your fellowship. I, I, I follow Jesus and I'm, I'm completely engaged in following Jesus. W what do we do with that? The, the, on, the most honest answer I can give you is I'm very thankful we haven't had that situation yet because I'm not sure exactly in real time, real life, how I would handle that situation. I, I, I don't know. Um, the, from, a, from a biblical perspective, I would not be able to say that Genesis 1.27, the idea that men and women together reflect the glory of God, is a, an open-handed issue. So I would say that, that that by itself has to be a closed-handed issue. So therefore, I would say a closed-handed issue would also be someone who is gender dysphoric who wants to transition. I would say um, that there are appropriate steps to take but once you start into hormone therapy and ultimately gender reassignment surgery, I would say that's out of the bounds of what is biblically allowable. In the same way, I would say to a same-sex attracted person, um, you, you can have a friendship with that same-sex person, but once that becomes an erotic relationship, it's now outside of the bounds of, of biblical orthodoxy. So I would say that the, the challenge with that question comes into someone having already transitioned does the Bible call that person to detransition? And the, the best answer I have for that is um, if that person is operating out of a redemption portion, not a fall portion. So they're saying, I fully believe that I'm redeemed by Jesus. I also am here right now. And the process of transitioning back to my birth gender is too great, then I'm um, that would be a process we'd have to walk through. If they're celebrating their transition, um, I, I think that puts them into the same category that we talked about before in terms of uh, living out of fall instead of living out of redemption. So I think it, it really, there, there are situations, particularly when age and health concerns come in, where someone who has fully transitioned, um, the process of transitioning back is, um, is medically challenging to the point where it's, it's maybe not worth it. And that becomes a, 
a much different conversation. So um, I said at the beginning, uh, when you met a trans person, you met a trans person. Like there's, there's not, uh, not uniform. Um, I, I think this is one of those situations where every single one of those situations would have to be dealt with one-to-one -one pastorally. Again, there's something going on with that person and uh, trying to help them walk through what that thing is is, is vitally important. So um, really, th th this is, these are the questions where it gets to be really difficult. So yeah, great questions. They're really hard, but yeah. Uh, could an argument be made that a trans person could say that their non-binary gender choice actually aligns more closely with the image of God Oh, that's a great, great question. Um, I should read these beforehand so I don't comment right in the middle of them. Sorry about that. Um, who is, uh, is non-gender conforming and multiple persons in one being? I'm curious if you've heard that and what it sounds like for people who, uh, who may make that claim. So, um, no, I have not um, heard that claim, but I have thought of that claim as I was researching this and uh, kind of tried to process through it. Um, so the argument would be that God made people, male and female, to together in unity reflect the glory of God. So therefore, someone who identifies as non-binary would not actually more fully re represent the glory of God because we're made to represent the glory of God within our binary genders. And so the, the way that the design of God is that we would reflect the glory of God is not by our non-binary choice. The other thing assumed, I'm assuming within this question is that we're talking about gender identity, not biological sex, meaning there's a difference here between uh, a gen non-binary gender identity and an intersex biological condition. So we'll talk next week about intersex because that gets to be a really a whole other conversation. But um, if, if that person is saying, I'm celebrating the fact that my intersex identity even though I'm choosing to identify, so often there is an actual choice of identity within an intersex person, depending on their form of intersex. If I'm choosing to identify as a male, but I'm celebrating that I'm more fully in some way representing the glory of God, there could probably be an argument made there. I've not heard that argument made, um, but there could probably be an argument made there. I think when you stop, when you choose to identify non-binary, you're actually removing the way that God says he would get glory. So it's kind of like, um, early on in marriage, before I really understood um, who Amanda was, we were, we were kind of in life together. Um, there were certain ways that I would show love to her by just doing things around the house or ways that I would think I was serving her. And what I finally found out, I'm really dense, so it took me longer than it would have taken most of you. Uh, but what I finally found out was I was actually doing things that I wanted to have done. And I was saying that that would be really helpful to her because somehow it was her job to do the things that I wanted to have done. And so therefore I was doing them and that was really a way, great way to serve her when in reality I was just doing what I wanted to do, right? Which it's completely self-centered. Um, when, when we choose to worship God on our terms, it's kind of like that. It's like God has said there's a certain way that he wants to be worshiped. And we say, yeah, but I have a better plan. Like that's not worship. That's actually selfishness, right? And so if God has created men and women to together reflect the glory of God, and then we would say, no, I have a better plan. If I'm non-binary, I more fully reflect you, we would effectively be saying, you don't know how you want to be worshipped. I'll show you how you want to be worshipped. And so uh, that's where the line would be there. But there, again, there's so many um, uh, exceptions to that. But that's, yeah, a quick answer to it. 
Uh, will you accept them to become members of York Alliance if they wanted to? I'm assuming them is uh, transgender people. Or explain what we believe. Uh, we learned about church discipline and treating them as unbelievers after the three steps, confronting, then bring two to three believers and, and then the elders. So that's uh, basically this is a, a Matthew 18 kind of issue. Um, and I would answer that a couple ways. Um, one, the the, the members of York Alliance is the tricky question because we would say membership, one of the requirements of membership is that you would be affirming doctrine, male and female gender is part of our doctrine, and that you would be um, living a life of repentance, that you would be seeking to uh, live under the lordship of Christ. So I would, I would say someone who is uh, actively engaging gender dysphoria, moving towards transition, and celebrating that would not qualify either as believing doctrine or living a life of repentance. And so that would, that would create a, an issue there. It, is that discipline worthy? Is that, the discipline, is that a discipline process? Well, I would say that depends on who that person is and um, what, they, what, they, what they affirm about Jesus. Are they, are they truly followers of Jesus? So the, the Matthew 18 principle is really fascinating because um, when you take Matthew 18 and pair it with 1 Corinthians 5, which is Paul basically living out the Matthew 18 principle by uh, getting to the point of excommunication with someone in the Corinthian church, his mindset in 1 Corinthians 5 is to treat them as an unbeliever and Remember what I just said about unbelievers, we belong before we believe, before we behave, right? And so the, the whole process of treating someone as an unbeliever becomes really um, uh, almost backwards in the way that you think about it because the goal is not to separate from that person, the goal is to love that person towards Jesus. And so someone who confesses Jesus and stays firm in their, I'm pursuing the other gender because that's the righteous thing to do, and firm in Jesus as Lord, then yes, ultimately that would be, if, they, if they're firm and immovable, that would ultimately end up to be a church discipline thing. Um, I honestly cannot even conceive a situation where we'd get that far, because um, at some point in time, that person's gonna be like, we're on different pages here and what we believe, and so they, they would just bail at some point in time. Um, but if they're firmly, I love Jesus, and I believe that Jesus is calling me to be a woman, then yeah, at some point in time, we would be having to walk through a, a discipline process. Uh, what is much more likely is that you get into the idea of partial lordship. So Jesus is Lord of everything except for. So Jesus is Lord of my mind and soul, but he's not Lord of my body. Or um, Jesus is Lord of all of these areas of my life, but this one area of my life, like I obviously he created me wrong, and so therefore I can do better than he can. I can deal with it better than he can. And so the, the idea, the, the primary tact would not be to bring them to discipline. The pr primary tact would be bring them to the gospel. You know, and that's, that's a really important thing within this entire conversation. Our goal with gender dysphoric people is not to get them to live as the right gender. Our goal with gender dysphoric, dysphoric people is to get them to encounter Jesus and to be transformed by Jesus in the same way it is for everybody else. So the goal is not some sort of outward conformity. The goal is to uh, introduce people to the gospel in a way that they would truly meet Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit can do his work. Like we can give the Spirit space to, to do that work in people. So uh, 
if, if the initial tack is discipline, you're going outward in instead of inward out. And so that's generally the way I would answer that one. Um, how do we begin conversations with someone experiencing gender dysphoria with someone who has a hard time opening up? Great question. Um, so uh, starting these conversations can be really, really tricky. Um, and it's actually the same thing as starting any significant conversation with anybody about anything, right? It's like um, wh when you want to talk about something that's really personal to someone, you, you typically don't start your relationship that way. Like you don't like just dive it, like even if it's very apparent to you. So we'll talk about pronouns next week. But if someone comes and they, they're clearly a woman and they introduce themselves as Robert and they say call them by he, him, um, probably the first step that you would engage is not arguing about whether their name is actually Robert or not, right? Like you're just meeting them. You call them by their name. Like it, when Sherry introduces herself to me as Sherry, she, uh, she used to introduce herself to me as Cheryl, and now she introduces herself as Sherry. I don't argue with her about that. That's the name she wants to be called. So I, I, I call her the name she wants to be called. Like, that's, that's common courtesy to people, right? Like, um, my daughter, everybody calls Tia. I call her Christia, because that's actually her name. And if she told me, Daddy, I want you to call me Christia, I want you to call me Tia, I would no longer call her Christia, because that's common courtesy. You call somebody what they want to be called, right? In the same way, when you start a conversation with someone, you're at a name level. You're not at a, let's talk about your gender dysphoria level. You know, um, So you have to build those relationships. At, and at some point in time, you create an environment where that person is willing to share their heart with you. And so I, I would say two things. One, um, as you share your heart with people, people will share their heart with you. So it's, re it's really pretty straightforward. Like if, if you're only trying to get stuff out of somebody and you're not being honest about where you are, you're probably not getting anything out of them. Like they're just not gonna go there. So be honest about you. Like be open about your struggles, the fact that you wrestle with real things. And then I would say um, don't consciously or subconsciously try to move away from the gender conversation. That's one of the things that people will tend to do with, with gender dysphoric people is like, okay, we're getting close and I'm uncomfortable now, so I'm going the other direction, right? Like you just like run the other way. Like don't do that. Like uh, allow people to express where they are, but, but don't push them into it. Uh, start conversations, build over time. Um, when you know that you, you're gonna need to dig in a little bit, it's gonna take more relationship. And so make time for people. I mean, that's, uh, a lot of it is really pretty simple. The, we've just, because, we have seen the issue more than we've seen the person, we've failed to do like normal stuff. So like normal stuff is when you wanna know something, when you wanna try to help somebody in a very deep area of their life, you have to build trust over a long period of time before you can do that. Like it's just the way it works. Like if I wanna, if I wanna challenge Earl about something that's really, really difficult, I'm not just gonna walk in, meet Earl for the second or third time and then like push him on something. I'm gonna, get to know him over a period of time, and I'm gonna like, try to understand where he's coming from, and then I'm gonna try to walk with him in a way that brings redemption. So that, that same thing has to happen when you're dealing with people who have gender dysphoria. Um, you, you wanna love them for them first. You wanna engage them as they are, uh, at, at the place they are, however they identify, whatever they're, wh whatever they're asking you to call them, and whatever they're saying to en engage with. Like, start there, and love them there. And then, as that process unfolds, 
you'll have an opportunity to get deeper. And so take that opportunity as you get there. Don't run away from it. All right, 8 o'clock. Uh, somebody set an alarm so I would know what time that is. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that, whoever that was. Um, so next week, we're going to wrap up. And uh, when we do that, we will have microphones available for questions. Um, uh, if you weren't with us in sexuality, I probably didn't state this really clearly at the beginning of this class. The reason why we're not starting with microphones and asking questions and making this a little bit more of a dialogical class is that I, I have no idea, and you have, even though I know all of you, I have no idea where you're coming from and what your story is. And I have no idea what you're wrestling with, what people that you love and are connected to are wrestling with, and neither do you. And the opportunity for you to um, create an offense where someone would say, I'm not coming back to this class, is way too high to make it worth me handing a microphone out. So next week, you cannot come back to the class afterwards because we don't have any more. And so it's okay. And then we can start to work through some of that stuff. I do think dialogue is really helpful in these conversations. So, so it's, it was really a tension for me because I really want to be able to have a dialogue. But at the same time, I think it's so important for us to get all the way through this conversation uh, before we start to get into some of those nuts and bolts. And so I appreciate you guys bearing with me and sending your uh, emails and texts and all that kind of stuff. So next week, we'll hit uh, the, just a little bit of some of the kind of the odder cases, the outlier cases. So we'll talk about, um, talk about intersex. We'll talk about uh, some of the forms of gender dysphoria that are a little bit more rare and uh, some of the reasons why that is. Um, we'll talk about pronouns and some of the way that pronouns operate culturally and what that means for us and what we do with that or what we should do with that, what we can do with that, all that stuff. And then we'll have a lot of time for questions. And so if you run out of questions, we'll be done early. So we'll kind of go with that. I, I'm going to ask you to use the microphone next week because we are recording this. And I'll also then say, if you don't want to be recorded, you're welcome to still text me questions. I'll still use them. I'll still read them like I am. I'm reading them out loud so that when they're recorded, they're able to uh, be out there so that other people are able to utilize this material. So if you're like, I'm not putting my voice behind that question, just text me. It's totally fine. No problem. No problem at all. So let me pray for you as you go. Jesus, um, you have given us a story of redemption and invited us to ourselves live in that story and to speak that story to the world around us. And so, God, would you uh, uh, loose our lips to do that? God, help us to be able to see uh, and understand and engage uh, mentally and emotionally with people where they are so that we can love them and bring them this beautiful story of redemption. And so, God, uh, Continue to help us to do that in this issue and in so many other issues within our culture. God, there's so much need for us to be bringing order to chaos and creating beauty. God, help us to do it. Help us to have eyes to do it and to each one of us within our own giftings and our own passions uh, to uh, engage that beauty. And so God, uh, go before us as we go from here. Help us to reflect you to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great night.